Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing No Strings. The sweetest sounds I'll ever hear are still inside my head. The kindest words I'll ever know are waiting to be said. The most entrancing sight of all is yet for me to see. And the But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. Of course, we're back after a week away. I am back. Patty and Benny are here with me. And I just want to let you know that our Friendsgiving, our podcast Friendsgiving, could not have gone any better. Oh, wow, we laughed. Oh, the jokes we told. The games we played. The jokes we told. Oh, how we laughed. Patty, Benny, thank you for (laughs) indulging me in that Friendsgiving. It was my idea. I was very aggressive about it. And I think we all genuinely did enjoy ourselves, and I can't wait to do it again next year, if we're lucky, if we're even here next year. Am I right? Isn't it fun when people say things like that? Even if, even if we're even here. Look, we got a lot to talk about. We don't got any time to dilly-dally or fuck around, as the uh, teens would say. I have a lot to talk about here in this opening segment, so uh, check in regards to the Friendsgiving. Check that off the list. We've told our listeners that that was a rousing success. I also want to go back in time. I want to go back in time to Thanksgiving. I want to talk about the Broadway performances from the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I do, I do. Let's start with Beetlejuice, the Beetlejuice cast. Yes, okay, so I wouldn't say that I outright dislike Alex Brightman's take on Beetlejuice, but I definitely waffle back and forth between this is marginally acceptable and all right enough already when watching him during this particular performance. Between the aggressive delivery and extensively reworked Thanksgiving-themed lyrics, it's less entertaining than it is a manic attempt at engagement. Just watch, you cretins, and be sure to like Beetlejuice on Facebook! This is the show that everyone says has a lot of heart, right? I'll believe it when I hear it, though I have to give it up for the moment where Beetlejuice feeds nachos to a character actor and the cheese drips onto the hapless fella's sweater a second, a split second before the camera cuts away. Ah, that cheese, that cheese has perfect timing. We, of course, cannot talk about the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade without talking about the Town performance. No, that would be crazy. I have no idea what's going on story-wise during Living It Up on Top, which is the song they chose to perform, but I get the feeling no one section of Town could be presented at the parade without eliciting some level of confusion. Seems like a plot-heavy show. Context is key. I'm guessing, <laughs> based on this number, that it's about a woman who is handed a lot of props, 
Here's a tin cup, lady. Here's a nice basket, lady, etc., lady, etc., lady. But I was able to distract myself by staring at the giant of a man who's rocking a full beard and a sleeveless shirt. This guy could crack open my head like it was a walnut, and I would welcome the brutality. Spill my brains, sir. Andre DeShields can also spill my brains, though he is an older gentleman and may need my assistance. Hand me the tin cup, Andre. I'll spill my own brains. It's the least I can do for you. You're a legend. Ain't too proud. Let's talk about that. If any show was designed to play well at the Thanksgiving Day Parade, it's definitely Ain't Too Proud. Pick out three classic songs, set them up side by side, and watch the applause roll in. Piece of cake. And this is definitely a delight, a genuinely engaging experience that doesn't have to sweat and beg for our appreciation. Looking back at you, Mr. Beetlejuice, Mr. Juice, I got a hefty kick out of the Can't Get Next to You finale, in which a great number of dancers appear in identical white suits. Lady Temptations, yes, please. And then finally, we have a performance from the Tina cast. Tina, the Tina Turner musical. Adrian Warren is way too glamorous to be performing that close to average winter park at tourists. Uh, but when you're called to work, you gotta work, I suppose. We do get a one-two punch of the best and proud Mary here, and the high point has to to be when grown Tina sings alongside her childhood self. There wasn't nearly enough of that, if you ask me, and I assume you're asking me because you're here and this is my show. More of little Tina, if you please. For the record, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade from the year of my birth, 1985, featured performances from Big River, <laughs> Singing in the Rain, <laughs> and Wind in the Willows, which starred Nathan Lane at the time. Oh, how far we've come. And I also just want to say real quick that I attended the United Center Celine Dion concert here in Chicago recently, and I just want to <laughs> I have a few notes from that that I just want to share with you. I think you, the listeners, my musical minions, would appreciate these observations. So in regards to her 2019 Courage World Tour, she sings That's the Way It Is right up top. It's the second song that she sings right after It's All Coming Back to Me Now. And when she finishes performing that's the way it is. There is a coda. She shouts to the crowd, there is only one way, and it is that way. That, that's true. That's the way it is. Yes, very much so. Celine does comedy at one point. She's doing some crowd work early on, and Celine Dion doing comedy, I, I say this with love, it's like Tommy Wiseau doing comedy. It's bizarre and kind of charming, and you can't turn away from it. At one point, she just, she went into this whole Thanksgiving set. She had a chunk uh, a tight five regarding Thanksgiving, and she was she was just saying something along the lines of "Happy Thanksgiving to you all." Yes, we all had a happy Thanksgiving. Lots of leftovers. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You will be eating those for a week. Mm, yes, I bet you will eat the turkey, and you will eat the turkey. You know, it was so weird. She just kept saying, eat the turkey, while miming a little bit of a chomping motion. So strange. Did she do the prayer? Fuck yeah, she did the prayer. Absolutely. Come on, what are you kidding me? And my final observation from this very short list of observations, drones. She has drones that appear and fly around her. One of them lands in her hand. This is during the encore for which she sings, my heart will go on. She have drones. She have drones and she's scary. She is going to, if you do do not applaud.
applaud. If you do not sing along, she will set her drones upon you, I do say. And that's the opening segment. Oh, we have so much to talk about in regards to this week's subject. Ooh, this is going to be a long one, I think. <laughs> Despite our best efforts to keep on moving, I think this one is going to be nice and thick. It's going to be thick. T-H-I-C-C! Okay, let's get the show facts. Show me the show facts. No Strings was a 1962 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on March 15, 1962 at the 54th Street Theater before transferring to the Broadhurst Theater in October 1962, and it ultimately ran for 580 performances. The book was written by Samuel Taylor. The music and lyrics were by Richard Rogers. This was the first show that Richard Rogers wrote after the death of Oscar Hammerstein II, and it is the only one for which Mr. Rogers wrote both music and lyrics. The director of the original production of No Strings was Joe Layton. The musical director was Peter Matz. The choreographer, Joe Layton. Scenic design, David Hayes. Lighting design, David Hayes. Sound design? And hey, we don't have an official sound design credit here, but we do have a sound technician. Close enough, right? Vincent Gilcher, you are our sound technician. Yes! Costume design by Fred Volpel and Donald Brooks. Mm-hmm. And the original Broadway cast included Diane Carroll, Richard Kiley, Noel Adam, Don Chastain, Alvin Epstein, Mitchell Gregg, Bernice Massey, Polly Rowles, and Paul Campbell. I, of course, oh boy, Campbell? Oh, I don't know. See, this is the thing, and I gotta say this every single week, but I, I, I do mean it. It's a genuine apology. I'm sorry. I don't know how to pronounce some of these names. I'm doing my best. But inevitably, I'm going to be making mistakes, and I apologize to all involved with this show. Let's talk about the Tony Nods. The Tony Nods. This production won. You ready? You ready for this? Best Original Score, Richard Rogers. Best Leading Actress in a Musical, Diane Carroll. And Best Choreography, Joe Layton. And it was additionally nominated for Best Musical, of course, of course, of course. Best Leading Actor in a Musical, Richard Kiley. Best Direction of a Musical, Joe Layton. Best Conductor and Musical Director, one category at one point. Best Conductor and Musical Director, Peter Matz. Best Scene of Design, David Hayes. And Best Costume Design, Donald Brooks. Well, wait a minute, we had two people there, right? Costume design, Fred Vopel and Donald Brooks. Come on already, Wikipedia. Don't fuck with me. Don't make me have to make a correction in the middle of this. We're live, baby. Come on. So in total, nine nominations, three awards. Let's talk about the plot. The plot, and I'm just going to tell you right now, spoiler alert, I found a copy of the script at the local library, and by local I mean downtown, had to go out of my way to pick this up. The plot of No Strings is quite easy to describe, and while I know I say that often, this week I truly mean it, because for all of the business involving its supporting characters, the show is steadfast in its focus on the two leads, David Jordan and Barbara Woodruff. David is an American writer who has published one novel and a collection of short stories, which is now out of print, as we learn. He has started and subsequently abandoned a number of follow-up novels, but he spends the majority of his time bumming around Europe. He's what is known as a Euro bum. David has friends in every corner of the continent who are willing to show him a good time and to lend out their spare rooms or houses, so he's never in need of a roof or provisions. Barbara, who is routinely referred to as Baba by her friends, is an American expat as well, though her roots are firmly planted in Paris. She doesn't go ping-ponging about. She fell in love with the city of Paris immediately upon arrival, having received a round-trip ticket after winning a dressmaking contest. 
There was no going back to New York after that. Barbara resolved to stay in Paris and become a model, and her dreams quickly came true. She now finds regular work with renowned photographer Luke Delbert and Vogue editor Molly Plummer, and she never has to worry about money. This security is all the more assured by the fact that Barbara has a friendship with one Louis de Portal, an older gentleman who takes her to fine restaurants and teaches her about culture, wine, paintings, that sort of thing. Barbara and Louis are not lovers and are not romantically linked, though Louis hopes love will develop between them, and Barbara feels duty-bound to respect their arrangement, their friendship. She may not like Louis in that way, but she won't ruin things by stepping out with other gentlemen, if you get my drift. It is, as they say in Europe, complicated. David and Barbara meet during one of Luke and Molly's photo shoots. The former walks the latter home, and their connection is undeniable. Well, it's undeniable to David, at least. Barbara clearly turns him down several times. She turns down his desire for romance. But David is one of those musical theater men who absolutely will not take no for an answer. There's a lot of advancing upon Barbara in the show's book, The Stage Directions. This domineering physicality I never like when it's demonstrated by these musical theater men characters. I would excise that nonsense from any future stage as it would only turn off your audience, I think, I would hope, David can be declarative and insistent in regards to what he wants without backing Barbara into a corner or grabbing her by the arm. But there I go, playing director again. Oh, and I'll be playing director again again in just a moment, just a short while. So the conflict between David and Barbara would appear to be that he has fallen in love with her and she's afraid to break things off with Louis, but that's a surface-level problem. What really bothers Barbara about David is that he's essentially stopped writing and can only think to jet set with fair-weather friends. Friends like Mike Robinson and Comfort O'Connell. That's not a life, according to Barbara. If David wants to commit to her, he has to commit to himself and stop engaging with every glittering distraction that appears in his periphery. Frivolous get-togethers, casino gambling, ski vacations, beach excursions, it's all gotta go. Well, David agrees to recommit himself to writing, taking Barbara to a cozy home owned by a friend so they can escape from Europe's glamour scene, and everything turns out just swell for a time. But then David is literally haunted by the idea of his friends partying without him, and he gets real pissy about it. He's got a mad case of the writer's block, and Barbara's guilt trips are not helping the creative juices to flow. So he abandons Barbara to meet up with Mike and Comfort in St. Tropez, and everything turns out just swell for a time. But then Comfort is disgusted to learn that Mike is two-timing her, and that leads to a real nasty confrontation between those two characters. David comes to accept that Barbara was right about how escaping from life only makes life harder to live, so he returns to her with hat in hand. Our leads initially vow to stay with one another, get married, and lead the life they believe they're supposed to live. But David has realized he won't be able to focus on writing if he stays in Europe, and so must return to the rocky shores of Maine, where he is from. Though she tries to pretend otherwise, the idea of leaving Paris and living in Maine fills Barbara with dread, and it is this final impasse that proves to be the couple's undoing. As the lights dim, they resolve to work on themselves and hope that one day their paths will cross again. 
again. And in the meantime, they'll simply pretend as if their time together never mattered, never happened. It's surprisingly melancholy, but also kind of lovely. Do I have additional thoughts on this plot as it is realized by Samuel Taylor's book? Of course I do. Of course I do. Thoughts? Are you kidding me? I have them by the thousands. But we'll save those thoughts for when we discuss this week's research sources, uh, which would be now. Okay. So, for the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1962 original Broadway cast album, and I read the book by Samuel Taylor. Thank you, Chicago Public Library System. Taylor's book is quite strong, and I found myself digging in, tucking in with it more and more as time went on. The plot of No Strings isn't exactly the stuff dreams are made of. It's not going to get butts in seats, but Taylor's dialogue will keep them there if they show up. It's clear-eyed and more human than what you'll find in most musical librettos. The characters live on and lift off of the page, but you can also imagine them living lives beyond their stage time, which is another rare occurrence for a musical. The stage directions became of particular interest to me, mainly in how they describe the way no strings should be staged. Every scene is meant to seamlessly transition into the next, with characters stepping out of one place or time and into another without missing a beat. One minute Barbara and David are in Luke's photography studio, the next they're walking the streets of Paris, and soon after that Barbara is in her apartment with Louis. I like that a lot. Starting and stopping a show to accommodate a change of scenery during a blackout is almost always a mood killer, right? So I imagine the sets for this show would have to come in and out with no help from visible stagehands. That's at least my thinking. And so we have officially come to the point where I tell you how I would direct a production of No Strings. We all like it when I play director musical man more like director man. So yes, the stage pieces for No Strings. Let's have every location, this is my pitch, every location from Paris to Monte Carlo to Saint Tropez, every location should be represented by these enormous semi-transparent flats that can fly in or enter from either wing of the theater. These flats would be backlit and look like gigantic postcards essentially. If furniture and other more practical elements can be brought in without the help of stagehands, all the better. Give me a couple of trap doors, give me platforms rolling in and out. No stagehands. I'm a fan of my postcard idea because Taylor's book is all about the emphasis of light versus darkness. The lights often dim so as to block out everyone and everything but our two leads, and it pleases me to think that these flats, when lit from behind, would provide a source of warmth while turning members of the ensemble into mere silhouettes. Would all tie together, I do say. Here's another aspect of the script I like a lot, the washing out of crowds to the degree where anyone who isn't David or Barbara becomes a blank face, a body that cannot be identified. There's such an emphasis on the blank faces of the ensemble that it begins to read as spooky, and you know I can't back away from spooky. I lean into spooky, I tell you. If I had my way, we wouldn't see a single face if it would distract from our stars. Put hats on everyone, give them big collars that stand on end, cast them in nothing but shadows. Our heroes only have eyes for each other. This is a thematic ideal that cannot be diluted. I say that, but there are moments where the ensemble stops being anonymous, and I wish that was not the case. There are absolutely no group numbers, so these performers only wind up serving as backup dancers. 
In those instances, I would simply lean on the blank face convention all the more. You're not people, you're backup, you're puppets, you're servants that appear and evaporate at the will of the main cast. I would be a fun director and everyone would like me. The script also references the fact that the show's musicians often are incorporated into the staging. The orchestra itself is not present on stage, but individual members pop in and out to supplement the performers. For the most part, they're unseen and unidentified by the actors, but there is an extended sequence where Comfort and Molly terrorize a trombone player. I'm not exactly sure why this happens, but they systematically steal parts of the trombone and then they shove their fists into it to silence the instrument. I don't know. Can we talk character for a moment? Character arcs, character beats, let's sit back, take off your shoes. We're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere anytime soon. Shut up, sit down. So here's my read on Barbara as a character. She is critical of David's lackadaisical Eurobum lifestyle, right? We know that. But I believe she is critical of this lifestyle because she is non-committal and just as enamored with surface pleasures as he is, and she hates that about herself. She hates that about herself. Sure, she's learning about wine and painters with help from Louis, but is that a more substantial and quote-unquote real life than David flitting from party to party, hanging out and having fun. I should say that the script defines Barbara as being, quote, about 24, quote, while David is described as being in his, quote, late 30s, quote. David is also described as being, quote, tall, lean, full of planes and angles. Love that description. He's a man that is full of planes and angles. <laughs> but back to Barbara. If she is meant to be about 24 years old, it makes sense that she'd be in a place in her life where the idea of love is more intriguing and easily embraced than the tougher day-to-day -day realities of love. Barbara's in love with love, is what I'm saying. She's enamored with the concept of playing house, being a capital W wife, who is of use to her man. But when we see her in the throes of love, she's clearly going through the motions, playing a part for David as she played a part for Louis. For Louis, I was the pupil, and for David, I am the wife. It's telling how when David first comes on to Barbara, she emphasizes her independence and the fact that no one can tell her where to go, what to do, or how to do it. But when they fall off a cliff together, when they fall head over heels together, suddenly all Barbara cares about is his happiness. She throws her very spirit out the window so she can be a one-woman support system for David, the great novelist. If you think I'm exaggerating or kidding, here is a selection of Act 2 dialogue from Barbara. Quote, I measure the world by you now. Is it a good day or bad? It depends on how David feels. Hear the sound of the sea, the waves on the shore. Like music? Not if it bothers my David when he's trying to write. Quote, Note that David in no way counters this idea that the sun and moon should rise and fall depending on his mood. He's never like, wait, whoa, don't, don't you want to continue modeling? Your happiness cannot depend on whether or not I'm able to write the next great novel, Barbara, Baba. He doesn't say these things because he doesn't think to do so. She's 24, he's in his late 30s, but neither of these people know what it means to be a person. That is why they cannot be together. Not because David has writer's block, or has a pension for partying, or because Barbara hates the idea of going back to America, but because they are not finished as people. 
In the show's opening number, The Sweetest Sounds, they both sing about words, sights, and, quote, the dearest love in all the world, quote. As these enticing baubles they've yet to come across, they seem to understand that neither of them have truly figured out what it means to live a life yet. But if they keep assuming the answers will come from exterior sources and not from within, they'll always be searching, peering over someone's shoulder and toward the horizon. It's not the worst way to live, I'm not saying that, but to summarize, I do think Barbara could learn to live with less judgment for how other people move through the world. We criticize others for what we dislike about ourselves, Barbara. P.S. My guess is that Barbara wants to be a fashion designer and not simply a model for the rest of her life. She did win a dressmaking contest, after all. What are your dreams, Barbara? Chase your dreams, but don't think they'll complete you. Uh Uh-uh. You gotta do that work yourself. Also, I would argue David not wanting to write for a while, or a long while, is fine. It's not actually a problem. I've tried my hand at writing in the past, and let me tell you, if you're not in the mood to write, it usually doesn't help to try and force your own hand. But David's writer's block is a huge problem for Barbara because she's frustrated with him, herself, and their weird, wonky situation. The writing is the perfect hook on which she can hang all of these resentments. If David is at his typewriter, she can pretend as if everything is fine. If he's not, she is marked as a failure, and so is he and their life as a couple. None of this is really set out right, by the way. It's just a lot of fun to think about. David and Barbara aren't surface-level pajama game archetypes we have to infuse with life if they're going to, you know, have any hope of resonating with audiences. These are, again, very human characters that are fun to examine and consider. If anything, No Strings reads more like a play that turns a corner and becomes a musical, then circles back to become a play again, rather than as a traditional book musical where all of the elements are finally stitched together. You'd think this would be a problem, but it's actually pretty fascinating. My theory is that No Strings goes out of its way to experiment with the form. Not radically. This isn't a total upheaval of the status quo, but there's a strange current that always seems to be bubbling underneath the surface of this piece. A current that washes away some of our usual pretenses and reveals some uglier truths. You want examples? Oh, I got some examples for you. Sometimes it's a simple matter of stage directions. There's a scene in Act 1 that takes place at a party in Luke's photography studio. The room is positively stuffed with people, but yet again we're told that anyone who is a stranger to us should read as blank-faced, anonymous, and unknowable. A disconcerting effect if you lean into it heavily enough, but then we get this moment where David, furious at himself for having botched an interaction with Barbara, quote, hurls his glass at one of Luke's overhead lights and moves swiftly out through the crowd, quote. It's the violence of this action that took me by surprise, but here's the thing. No one reacts to the aggression in the way you would expect. The only people who seem to witness it as having even happened are Molly and Comfort, and they only use it as a springboard for a light-hearted song about love. It's surreal, but also starkly realistic, a commentary on how these privileged characters cannot process negativity because their own lives are so, again, privileged. As a reminder, Molly is the editor of Vogue, and Comfort has so much money at her disposal that she pulls entire wads out of her outfits to fan herself with. (laughs) 
It makes sense that we'd be stunned by David's actions, but for Molly and Comfort, it's simply another wild night out. Now I'd like to take a break from my tour of the strange and surreal so I can read directly from page 70 of the script. This is from Act 1, and David has appeared at Barbara's apartment to essentially beg for slash demand her attention. This selection begins with Barbara speaking for the record, and the stage direction has her has her speaking desperately. Barbara, desperately. Go away. I want no part of your life. It's a terrible life. I think it's pretty good. You've talked yourself into it. The fair-haired boy of Europe. The non-writing writer. Everyone's friend. There's always someone who will give you a house, isn't there? And always a girl to take to it. Not me. Not me. What are you slanging me for? You don't need me to help you destroy yourself. You're doing a good job on your own. I re- <laughs> what I really get out of that, the use of the word slanging is what I really get out of that. It's by far the most 60s moment the book has to offer. And I may as well say it here, the dialogue between these two is really strong in my opinion. I mean, it has to be. The show depends on it being good, and I'm here to say that it is. Okay, so back to the strange and surreal. In Act 2, Barbara leaves David alone to write, having rejected his idea to run off to Deauville and meet their friends at a casino. Molly specifically invited Barbara to Deauville so she could do another fashion shoot, but Barbara turned down the invitation without telling David about it first. David's pretty annoyed by that, but Barbara underlines how they have already left Paris for the coast of Normandy, not so they can simply enjoy each other, but because David has promised to knuckle down and write, goddammit. This is all set up to the stage directions I want to read, so here you go. This is from page 87, I believe, Act 2. Yes, Act 2. Barbara says, I'll go make you some coffee. And then the stage directions read as such. She runs into the house. The lights begin to fade. Wisps of fog roll in. David stands alone, staring out to sea. As the light dims, we hear the faint stirrings of the song, Be My Host, as though echoing in his mind. And then we hear an echo of, Look No Further, and the two melodies clash, and figures move through the gathering dusk and are gone. It is dusk now. David sits down at his typewriter, inserts a piece of paper, turns the roller, and keeps turning it in reverie until the paper falls out. The music from Deauville intrudes again, and then over it, in the distance, we hear Barbara singing a small part of Look No Further. David puts the paper back in the typewriter and starts to type. Figures begin to drift on from the darkness. David's pals in Deauville, brightly dressed, their faces blank. David gets stuck, begins to hit one key. The Deauville music becomes more insistent, and he keeps pounding at the one key with growing anger. And finally, desperately, he pulls the paper from the typewriter and crumples it. Barbara appears with coffee. The music cuts off. This is all so weird and great. The ghosts of parties present and yet to come are raking David over the coals, and he can't stand it. People are having fun without me? Fucking fuck that. I'm clawing at the walls over here. I'm no domestic. Dude loves a good casino party in Deauville. What can you say? But here is what is easily the best and most bizarre part of Samuel Taylor's script, and it involves 
Comfort. Now, Comfort is a good time gal. She's got money to burn, makes friends like it's nothing. Everyone loves Comfort. But in Act 2, well, I'm gonna read this scene to you from Act 2. This takes place after a song called Eager Beaver, which is a duet sung by Mike and Comfort, who are technically, it's casual, but they are a couple. We understand them to be a couple. They're on the beach, they're having a ball singing Eager Beaver. It's a party number if there ever was one. So we're coming out of that to keep in mind. This is from page 103, Act 2 of No Strings. The first line of dialogue you're going to hear is from Comfort, and then the other characters in this scene are David and Mike. All right, so here we go. Comfort. Mike? Mike? Hey, David, what happened to Mike? The girls and boys begin to wander off, taking the chairs with them. David. I don't know. He was here a minute ago. He's making himself a drink. He probably went to get some cigarettes. Comfort. You can get cigarettes right over there. She is moving about anxiously. Mike? Mike? By now the crowd is almost gone, and the last to go are a couple of beach boys who carry away the slatted wooden fence. Comfort discovers Mike on the ground with the girl. You two-timing, double-crossing son of a bitch! Mike rises quickly, shooing the girl off and away. Mike. Hello, honey, I was just admiring the view. Comfort, I saw you admiring the view. Mike, coming to her. Now, Comfort, don't get excited. Get the hell out of here. Get out of my life. It was just one of those little accidents. You know what I mean. It wasn't an accident. I've seen you looking around. Who, me? Honey, I swear, no man's going to treat me like a wife. Now, Comfort, if what you're getting from me isn't enough, honey, it is. Look, I didn't want it. If I could give it back to her, I'd do it. And with that, she slaps him hard. Livid with anger, he goes to slap her back, but David grabs his arm. David, hey, Mike, I don't like women slapping me. Comfort, not even with $100 bills in their hands? A long, hard pause. Get out of my life. You know where your clothes are. Get them and pack. Just get out of my life. Mike attempts and manages, with some effort, a gay, nonchalant, insouciant smile. Mike, well, back to Rome and those lousy Italian movies. See you on the Via Veneto, David. And he turns and trots off. A moment, then Comfort turns to David and manages a brave smile. Comfort, that leaves you and me, David. Let's get out of here, huh? I don't think much of this place. Where would you like to go? Greece? Turkey? How about Vienna? I haven't been to Vienna yet. Is there any action there? David, gently. Comfort, you don't need me. But I like you, David. There are plenty of guys like me and Mike who will be glad to show you a good time on your money. Europe is full of bums like me. You'll never be lonesome. But I'd rather have you. Don't you like me, David? Yes, I do, but I wouldn't be any fun. You just did something for me, Comfort. What? When you hit Mike, you hit me. You hit me hard. I don't know what you mean. I've got to get out of your life. Quickly. (laughs) I'm just reading stage directions, even if they're very simple. So this stage direction says, quickly. No, that's not fair. Out of my life, this life. Suddenly, it's no life at all. Comfort, what are you going to do? I don't know. I don't know. Gently. Goodbye, Comfort. You'll get along. You know your way around Europe now. You'll get along fine. He touches her nicely and starts away. Comfort, almost desperately. David, I don't want to be alone. David, a moment. Neither do I. He goes. She looks about, lost and alone. The music of eager beaver sneaks back in, and Comfort cries out, singing, action, reaction, action, reaction. 
And almost as though in answer, the Beach Boys begin to come on out of the darkness. Come, little beaver, I believe a task awaits us. Each little nibble brings you close to where I am. Build like a beaver till the thing we're building mates us. Eager beavers always give a damn. And now the young men converge on her and surround her, and she reaches up for a moment. But then she is engulfed. Blackout. I mean, come on, how do you beat a scene like this? Comfort is swallowed up by her own music number. The musical becomes a trap that she willingly throws herself into because she cannot handle the idea of being alone. Gang, I gotta tell you, I cannot get enough of this idea. The idea that a musical can trap you, keep you frozen, and prevent you from moving on with your life. When other characters sing in no strings, it's because they have to get something off their chest. They're engaging with the form in a way that should come as no surprise to us. I am able to sing, and so I will sing to make my intentions and needs clear. But that is not Comfort's relationship with the musical form. Hers is an unhealthy, fucked-up relationship, and it winds up destroying her, essentially. Where does she go from here? I imagine she ceases to exist. So creepy. I love it. I love it so much. You can't handle being alone, Comfort. You find comfort in song, Comfort? Well, my dear, you'll find comfort enough, all right. Enough to kill you. It's like someone saw a production of The Boyfriend and thought, hmm, what if the safety in numbers sequence ended with someone being wiped from existence? I'm rambling. I don't apologize for it. Now, I've been taking quite a lot of time to talk about this script, but I've saved the most important bit of context for last, and that's the author's note. It reads as such at the front of the script. Quote, The part of Barbara Woodruff in No Strings is designed to be played by an American colored girl in her early 20s. It is proposed that she also be beautiful, have style, and wear clothes well, be intelligent, witty, warmly human, and wise. The play itself never refers to her color. Quote, it goes without saying how there is a lot to unpack after reading that author's note aloud. I'll say this right off the bat because it's clearly important. There's another note in the script about how No Strings is meant to take place in the present. And I'm a little hazy on how that should be interpreted today. Was the present a reference to the early 60s? Are we meant to keep the show in that particular decade? Or is the present a reference to whatever time we, the playmakers, happen to be living in? Put a pin in that while I dive into some context. It was Richard Rogers who initially suggested that Barbara be played by Diane Carroll. He saw Carroll perform on an episode of The Tonight Show and believed her being cast alongside Richard Kylie, who is white, would mark the show as progressive, especially at a time when the civil rights movement was in full swing. But you heard the author's note correctly. No Strings makes absolutely no reference to Barbara's race. The character must be played by a black woman, Samuel Taylor is making that quite clear. But once the casting decision has been made, your work is done as far as he is concerned. Barbara and David are an interracial couple. Anyone with eyes can see that. There's no need to point it out or sermonize or or patronize, or, quote, make a big deal out of it. I'm not really quoting anybody. That's just, I put quotes around that. Make a big deal out of it, essentially. This is, of course, a decision so baffling and tone-deaf that it could only have been made by an all-white writing team. This is not a political show. We have plucked a black woman out of the ether and plopped her on stage. The color of her skin is to be seen and not commented on in any way whatsoever. So don't even try. This is not a political show, and it isn't about race. But it is about race, right? 
and refusing to engage with racial politics doesn't make your musical apolitical. It quite obviously makes it all the more political. How can anyone have expected a 1960s audience to simply nod toward the basic existence of race without wanting to explore the implications of an interracial romance? This is the 1960s we're talking about. Broadway audiences weren't so liberal-minded that this choice would have gently skirted past them. Oh, look, honey, the scenic design was by so-and-so. That man is wearing a hat, and that black woman is falling in love with a white man. All merely interesting, nothing worth getting into a tizzy about. Am I right, my dear, sugar plum? Give me a goddamn break. They would expect the subject to come up. Not because they're bothered by interracial romance, necessarily, but because it's maddening for a choice like this to call attention to itself while telling you to look past it, look away from it, nothing to see here. Just the audacity, the idea that a black woman living in Paris wouldn't have any thoughts on her own race and how people treat her because of it. It's so insane. These people are debating the value and merit of their lives, David and Barbara, I mean. These people are debating the value and merit of their lives, how they choose to live their lives. This isn't cotton candy carnival time. These are adults wrestling with real emotions. But no time for race, dear boy. No one likes to hear a sermon. Blah. We need a rewrite if this is ever going to be taken seriously in 2019 and onward. I'm not calling for the show to stop dead in its tracks and sermonize, whatever that even means at this point. But if Barbara is to be a black woman, we have to at least know she knows she's a black woman walking through a world ruled by white interests. Because you know what? Every black woman is reminded of this. Constantly. And in 2019, the choice to enter into an interracial relationship comes with a conversation. Because racism wasn't obliterated in the 60s, was it? No. It's a monster we will always be dealing with, and there's no escaping that. Sorry, Richard Rogers. I know you thought your choice was a simple one, but nothing is simple. Also, to go back to the original author's note, quote, it is proposed that she also be beautiful, have style, and wear clothes well, be intelligent, with warmly human, and wise, they might as well say she has to be perfect. She has to be black and uphold every ideal feminine virtue. And on top of all of this, she has to be wise. Wise? What the fuck kind of code is that? No one else is getting this kind of note. David is full of planes and angles. No one's expecting him to be exuding a dozen other brilliant qualities. David's a white guy who succeeds by existing, but Barbara, for some mysterious reason, has to be a gorgeous genius. Psst. It's no mystery, actually. It's simply that black women are always held to a higher, nigh-impossible standard because we can't imagine them being happy or successful without being exceptional in every way. Well, it's finally time to talk about the score, so let's talk about the score, shall we? Let's talk about The Sweetest Sounds. The Sweetest Sounds. Sight of all is yet for me to see.
opening number officially serves as its prologue, with David and Barbara standing in concentrated pools of light as they're backed by a pair of onstage musicians. A flute backs Barbara, while a clarinet backs David. It's so, so good. The Sweetest Sounds may very well be one of the best songs that the musical theater canon has to offer. It sustains itself over five minutes of time with one, count them, one verse, which is pretty remarkable. I never get tired of hearing that one verse. Many people of a certain generation, and I would be included in this generation, would know the sweetest sounds from ABC's 1997 adaptation of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. You just heard it, the one with Brandy and Whitney Houston and Whoopi Goldberg and Victor Garber and Bernadette Peters and Paolo Montalban. You know the one I'm talking about. Don't even try to act like you don't know what I'm talking about. Sad fact, though, that does not hold up overall. Kind of boring as an adult. But as a child, that shit was must-see TV for me. Whenever it appeared on the schedule, put everything else on hold. Cinderella is back on the air. All right, let's keep going. What are the poor girls getting? To whom do they raise a voice? What are the poor girls netting? They just have Hobson's choice. They crane their delicate necks, but there's just one opposite sex. How sad to be a woman. Women are stuck with men. A lady's life must be dreary without a lady to call dearie. A woman's cheek is for caressing. A man's is trouble, it's mostly stubble. It's sad and so depressing. Ladies, I ask again. Can a woman be like a woman? What do they see in men? Within the song How Sad, there's a reference to what is known as Hobson's Choice. I figured this was an intellectual reference for which I had no well uh, reference, and so I looked it up. Here are the results from Wikipedia. Quote, a Hobson's Choice is a free choice in which only one thing is offered. Because a person may refuse to accept what is offered, the two options are taking it or taking nothing. In other words, one may take it or leave it. The phrase is said to have originated with Thomas Hobson, 1544 through 1631, a livery stable owner in Cambridge, England, who offered customers the choice 
choice of either taking the horse in his stall nearest to the door or taking none at all. So there we are. The Hobson's choice here, according to David, is the choice given to women when it comes to romance. They can choose to be with a man or they can choose to be with no one at all. And according to David, it's probably best if they just go with the latter option. Homosexuality does not exist in no strings, much as race would appear to not exist in no strings. Damn! Perhaps you already know what comparison I'm about to make, but don't say it out loud. Keep it to yourself, no spoilers. There's a moment here where David sings, How can a woman be like a woman? And it's that line that evoked My Fair Ladies, a hymn to him, which I commonly refer to as, why can't a woman be more like a man? I like to think Richard Rogers is having a bit of fun here, providing a playful counterpoint to Henry Higgins, Lerner and Lowe's snooty slam on the female species. How sad is bright and brassy, specifically in how it is arranged, and I find it to be quite the charmer of a tune. I never have been handed much. I never have demanded much. I just want money, a nice position, and loads of lovely love. I never have expected much. I never have rejected much. I want my dinner, some conversation, and loads of lovely love. The dumb ones go for quantity. The wise ones go for quality. I've got the answer now. It's not how much, it's how. I do not ask for bliss, I guess. It all boils down to this, I guess. I just want money and then some money and loads of lovely I view Loads of Love as a literal song and dance routine that Barbara performs for David. It's a big and bold display, but it has practical aims. For one, it's meant to define who she is as a person, or at least who she is today, or wants to be in an ideal setting. And that first goal feeds into the second goal, which is to warn David about what he's getting himself into by pursuing her romantically. Barbara is emphasizing her youth, how she is full of life, and is not one to suffer fools. When you consider how hard she falls for David in Act 2, you start to realize that maybe this is the first time this character has ever fallen head over heels in love. She thought she had a good head on her shoulders and had herself all figured out, but in classic fashion, she is then turned all around, thrown for a loop. It's a relatable arc. Put another way, youthful declarative confidence that is ultimately shakeable, I find it to be completely realistic and endearing. Shakeable's relatable, baby! I fly off to Switzerland for skiing But sit on the terrace sipping scotch I'm just a seeing human being If I can't do something, I watch the man who has everything has nothing. He love all his own, he can see. I think it may be true, it never will be you. But meanwhile,
Full disclosure, I did incorporate The Man Who Has Everything, which you just heard, into a 20-minute one-man cabaret I wrote and performed while I was in college. I took a one-person cabaret writing class. It was quite fun and educational. My show was called Bruce, and it was about Bruce Wayne and his love for Robin, who was ultimately killed by the Joker over the course of that 20 minutes. A lot of stuff packed into that 20 minutes. Other songs from my cabaret included Every Day a Little Death, I Want to Be Evil, Till Him, into the fire, walk him up the stairs, and a parody of The Streets of Dublin from A Man of No Importance, which I dubbed The Streets of Gotham. All true, but back to no strings. The man who has everything does a very good job of drawing us closer to a character, in this case, Louis, who overall has very little stage time. He could have easily been this, you know, sugar-style, lecherous pervert, but instead he's a slightly melancholic romantic. I am a fan of the following lyrics from this song. The man who has everything has nothing, till love all his own he can see. I think it may be true, it never will be you, but meanwhile I have everything. Everything. Lucky me. I also dig, I'm just a seeing human being. If I can't do something, I watch. These are quality lyrics, Mr. Rogers. Let's ignore the fact, as I did until it came barreling to the forefront of my mind, that Louis regularly has Barbara followed and watched by his driver? Not great, Louis. Not everybody loves Louis, I don't think. I think I should say I think that is a safe statement to make. Barbara may not care about that, but I care, Louis. I care. Step up, my friend, and be my host. songs from this score feel like they'd be right at home in a swanky, smoky club or cabaret setting, none more so than Be My Host. I can absolutely see Frank, Sammy, and the rest of the Rat Pack rotating this toe-tapper into their set list. Frank, Sammy, Dean, right, Dean? And uh, Roseanne, of course, Roseanne and um, Becky, and uh, Darlene, and DJ, and... um, Mm, Jackie, Jackie, who Jackie, and Dan. Cette jolie poupée, c'est moi. She says she's a doll. Jolie à croquer, c'est moi. She says she's... Mm. Je ne suis qu'une jolie poupée, mais c'est assez, bien assez. She says she's... Oh, no. Oh, oui. La, 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 la. Je suis mignonne et tout me sourit. She says, la, 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 la. La, 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 la. Il n'y a personne qui soit si jolie. She says, there's no one in the whole world. La 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 comes out of a scene between Luke, the photographer, as a reminder, and Jeanette, his assistant slash lover, that is entirely in French. I have no clue as to what they are talking about in that scene, just as I have no clue what they are singing about here during La La La. I'm sure it's hilarious if you know a lick of French, but alas, I am, how you say, quel que c'est sans French, pipi-poupou? You don't teach a kid to drink milk or 
mackerel to swim in the sea. And when the magic hour approaches, lover, you don't tell me. You don't teach the ocean to roll or an Englishman how to drink tea. And when affection starts to take me over, you don't tell me. Diane Carroll is an amazing Spitfire talent, and I adore her fuck you energy during the number You Don't Tell Me. David's pushiness really does drive me up a wall after a while, and I appreciate how Barbara takes time to say, hey, you can't force someone to accept your affection or terms, and you most certainly can't force them to match your pace, bub. Slow your fucking roll, good sir. Did I forget to mention that Diane Carroll was the first black woman to win the Tony Award for Best Leading Actress in a Musical? I did, and I apologize for that. She has a million TV and film credits and has a hefty collection of albums to her name. I cannot possibly do her or her career justice. Her career and her life speaks for itself. Diane, I salute you. The race is to the swift, my friend. But haste makes waste, mon cher. Besides, love laughs at locksmiths. Love makes the world go. Who needs to think in made time? Zen Buddhism is not for hate. Time thought is not, and mind is blind. When music in the air Just murmur low I love you Love makes the world go square Love makes the world go square Love Makes the World Go is a fine enough comedic two-hander for the characters Molly and Comfort. It comes out of that moment I described earlier where David hurls his drink into the lights of Luke's studio. Still can't see how we're supposed to transition from that into the somewhat pithy fluff piece of unloves travails, I should say, that you just heard. But the clearest thought that came to mind while listening to this track was my need to hear Elaine Stritch tackle the role of Molly in place of Polly Rowles. I know we need to be dividing the salty lady roles as equally as we can, but Elaine Stritch did them so damn well. I think we all know this to be a truth. I want nothing less than Elaine for my salty dames. You would have heard this in the clip just now, but I am a fan of how Bernice Mossy, as comfort, uh, goes up on Love Makes the World Go Square, while Polly Rouse takes it down during that harmony. It's a tidy harmony you can see coming from a fair distance, but there's a coziness to that predictability. Ah, we're near the end of the track. We're coming up on the song's title one last time. Let's have fun with the harmony. I'll go up. You go down. Fun! was made of lightning Nobody warned me Love would make me quake No one suggested I would not be rested If night after night I Love was made of hunger 
David and Barbara's ballads are where the score starts to lose me a bit. We've lost the will-they-won't-they they tension and are now living firmly in the territory of misty-eyed schmaltz. I find myself lost when listening to Nobody Told Me. Not lost in the song, that would mean it was pleasurable. <laughs> Just generally lost, reaching out for a melody I can hang on to and use to ground myself. Instead, my mind goes fuzzy and I float away like a balloon. Could I hum a few bars if nobody told me for you now? No, I, I truly could not. I listened to the album twice this week and I still cannot do that for you. That is the God's honest truth. And then I'm not even going to play you a clip from Look No Further, which comes right after Nobody Told Me. Look No Further is nearly identical to Nobody Told Me in pace and sentiment while somehow managing to be even more anonymous and hard to recall. This is gauzy, subpar South Pacific claptrap and it bores me to tears. Next! Let the snow come down before when the sun comes up. When the sun comes down, the kids are Maine out. is the main thing. Where's Maine? There's a sidewalk symphony Let of the song and, and hills get frozen up. North of Central Park. Way down in Maine. Get the sleigh turnabout. That's a nice team. Close your eyes, start to count sheep. What's the use turning on steam? Never mind trying to sleep. Let the snow come down before There's it starts to rain in the under the covers. It's cozy, what a warm place it is after it's dark. Mainly I do like up north of central. Mainly I do like up north. I do like up north of Central Maine. Central Park. Maine is the sort of song that rings as more novelty than necessary, you know what I mean? If you put it up for the purposes of a black and white variety show, it might succeed as a pleasing diversion. But when you're in act two of a book musical, all anyone will hear is the frantic sound of wheels spinning. And you'd think I would have the answer to this question considering I've read the book, but what is the game of this song? David and Barbara are defending the merits of Maine and Central Park, but they have no interest in moving to either location. So what are the stakes? If someone were to win this game, what would they win? They're not debating on where they should move. This is silly stuff. I think Richard Rogers had a song about Maine in his trunk and Hammerstein hated it. And then Hammerstein died and Rogers was like, ha 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 ha, finally, now is the time for my Maine song to shine. Out of the trunk with you. Put it back in the trunk, Richard. I'm a self-educated idiot. I'm an orthodox fool. All I'm not, I owe to myself. Every discredit should go to myself. I knew my way, but I lost it. The game was won, but I tossed it. I knew the speech, but I Lucky that the world has me alive in it. If the swimming pool is empty, then I dive in it with my tarnished golden rule. I am dumb, obtuse, absurd, and blind. I'm an orthodox fool. 
All right, now I'm back to praising Richard Rodgers. I'm sure you'll all be happy to hear that announcement. His lyrics for An Orthodox Fool have a crisp snap to them, a snap that is brought into the light by Diane Carroll's excellent delivery. The best example of this relationship between writer and performer, quote, I am lucky that the world has me alive in it. If the swimming pool is empty, then I dive in it. Very good. A plus. First place ribbons for all involved. I'm not sure why I thought I had some original, fiercely perceptive interpretation of Barbara's character, like I was this smart and deeply intuitive sleuth or some shit, when evidence of her arc is right there in the material. She reflects on that arc here, moving from the harried frustration of an orthodox fool into a more serious and somber reprise of Nobody Told Me. During that reprise, she sings, quote, should they have told me love would come to own me, healing and wounding me too? Nobody told me, no, not even you. Nobody told me, I knew. Barbara knew she was crazy to throw her plans out for David. She wants to be more level-headed and focused, but love made her fucking cuckoo. She never could have prepared herself for this. Look, this is all to say that I like the turn this track takes. This is all good stuff. Side note, you know what I wanted to watch after reading and listening to No Strings? Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy. Comparisons can be made between this musical and those films. Love found while walking the streets of Europe? I mean, come on, it's all right there. What makes an eager beaver eager to be busy? What makes an eager beaver try to jump a gun? Maybe a beaver thinks a bit of rest might cause a mild revulsion. Or does a feeling of compulsion make him run, run, run? Come, little beaver, I believe a task awaits us. Each little nibble brings you close to where I am. Build like a beaver till the thing I totally respect the decision to have the ensemble provide silent backup, never once joining the core cast for an official group number. It's a consistent artistic choice. I would never undo it as a director. But at the same time, I believe we can all agree that Eager Beaver would pop in more, it would pop more, if it were a big-ass group number. Hands up and surrender, that's all I'm saying, it must be said. You know what Comfort and Mike say a lot in this number, Eager Beaver? Uh, the word beaver! So much beaver talk. Nice little beaver with the skin so soft. Nice little beaver with the teeth so white. What a consciously insane non-rhyming couplet. Not sure what I'm supposed to do with it, but I am not complaining about it. Let the little folk who need the help depend upon us and such. We are much to talk. No time. Except our own emotion We'll hear some silent call If marriage comes We'll let it come As one of those perfect things With 
I have next to nothing when it comes to discussing the title song of this week's subject. No Strings, the song, is, like a few of these David and Barbara duets, pretty dang forgettable. Pretty dang forgettable! Though there is a sticky slice of musical theater goodness that managed to stick around in me gullet, and that is the if marriage comes, we'll let it come. For some reason that stuck with me. I don't know. That part ain't bad. The conclusion of the show sees David and Barbara singing a reprise of The Sweetest Sounds, after which they pass each other before exiting into the wings. They don't see each other. There's no recognition. It's as if they've never met or never remembered meeting in the first place. It's a fantastic choice and adds so much to the overarching theme of no strings. Sometimes there really is nothing tangible that keeps two people together, no matter how intensely those two people may have felt about each other at one time. One day you're scaling the heights side by side, and the next you don't even catch each other's eye while strolling down the street. It's such a weird aspect of life. I would say it's sad, but with enough time and experience, you wouldn't describe that loss as sad. You'd see it more as a funny fact of life, yeah? Oh yes, at one point I was a fashion model in Paris, and yes, at one point I did think about marrying that novelist. What was his name? I want to say Mason? All that said, I love my husband Chris, and he loves me, and we will all be together, the two of us together forever, because we've been together for over five years, and we are gay men, and we know what we want. We're not silly straight people crashing into each other while in Europe. That comes, that brings us, I should say, <laughs> to the end of our discussion of the No String Score. Now is time, now is time to hear from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. 5678. Ooh, well, hello there. Oh, hello, hello. Yes, it's me, Mary Sunshine from Chicago. Oh, that's right. Oh, here's my car, darling. Do you want me to, uh, do you want me to cover a story for you? Do you got a real hot scoop? Well, here's the scoop that I've been working on. Ooh, lady killers. That's right. I love a good lady killer scoop. So if you've got a scoop involving a lady killer, why don't you do yourself a favor and ring me up on those digits, baby? Those digits that are on that card. Ooh, here's, uh, here's the thing. I love hats with flowers in them. I love little pens and little notebooks, and I love ladies who kill men. Ooh, I love it. I just recently went to an execution. Now, normally I cover lady killer trials, but I went to my first execution recently, and it was delightful. And do you know what? This woman, her name was Betsy Bobbins. Ooh, Betsy Bobbins. Did you hear about her? Of course you did. We all heard about her. You read my column weekly. I know you did, you naughty boy. Don't even pretend you did otherwise. Betsy Bobbins, or whatever her name was, she killed 40 Eight men in the in the in the course of 48 hours. Can you believe it? What a gimmick! I love her. She's delightful. And on the chair, when she was in the chair, she was about to be electrocuted. She was going to have lightning coursing through her veins. And you know what she requested? A cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee. And if I could not relate more, oh, I don't even know. I was thinking, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. If I was on the chair, if I was about to have lightning course through my veins, I would want nothing more than a cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee to send me off. She also cursed all of our names. She said she would come back to haunt us, and she has been haunting me ever since. I said very nasty things about her in my column, but you know what brings me comfort? 
five, six, seven, eight coffee, and I hope to one day make amends with that ghost of Betty Bobby Bobbins, whatever her name was. I one day hope to offer that cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee to that ghost so that we may make amends. Because can you think about it? Can you imagine a ghost giving an interview? Now that's a scoop. That's a scoop, baby. Oh, oh, oh. Look, I'm going to let you go, honey. I have a lot of lady killers to cover. Women are killing men all over the streets of Chicago, and I am a fan of it. Yes, queen. Okay, gotta go. All right, bye. Five, six, seven, eight coffee, by the way. Let me write this down with my little pen. Here, I'll write it on a piece of paper from my notebook. Five, six, seven, eight coffee. You can count on it. Rip, handing it to you now. Goodbye, waving my hand, getting into a car, taking off my hat, lighting a cigarette, rolling the window down, smoking the cigarette, blowing the smoke out into the streets of Chicago. Final thoughts regarding No Strings, the prose. The book is well-written and surprisingly strange slash experimental, leaving me a lot to think about, and a handful of the songs are genuinely great. The cons. Beyond that handful of songs, the score isn't as engaging as the show's book, falling particularly flat once we move into Act 2. Also, it wants to highlight race while refusing to talk about race, which is, you know, infuriating. Rewrite the book. You cannot erase race. Now, as a reminder, in case you didn't already know, in 1962, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, and the additional nominees from that season were Carnival, exclamation point, Carnival, and Milk and Honey. While I certainly enjoyed my time with No Strings, it isn't as successful in its experimentation with the form as How to Succeed is in upholding and elevating the tenets of the form. How to Succeed is rock-solid musical theater comedy entertainment with very few asterisks next to that statement. It's sturdier, and the songs are certainly better overall, right? I'll say again, I applaud No Strings for its reach, but I don't think it's best musical material at the end of the day. Close! So close! Quite close! But no cigar. But now it's time to rank the show. No more talk of whether or not it should have won the Tony Award for Best Musical. We gotta rank the show against all of the other shows we've talked about on the podcast. Yes. I'm gonna put this show at number 19, right between Rent at number 18 and Woman of the Year at number 20. That's true. If you want to see our full list, our ranking at this point in time, go to Twitter, Musical Man Pod. Click on the pinned tweet, go to the Google Sheet, you'll find this ranking on the second tab. It's true. Show-related ephemera, I want to play a quick clip here from an episode of The Bell Telephone Hour. This is their salute to the 1962 Broadway season, and in this clip we're going to hear the sweetest sounds as sung by Robert Goulet himself. Yes, ooh, it's so juicy. Ooh, it's so thick. His sound is thick, I tell you, T-H-I-C-C. Barbara Cook is also featured in this medley, but for now we're just going to hear a good old Bobby Goulet. Take it, Bobby. The sweetest sounds I'll ever hear Are still inside my head The kindest words I'll ever know Are waiting to be said The most entrancing sight of all Yet for me to see And the dearest love in all the world Is waiting somewhere for me Is waiting somewhere 
your voices like syrup to me. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers, oh, speaking of Rogers, and Hammerstein, oh, we mentioned him too, named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, He Was My Son Slash Son. Uh, just to let you know, the title of that show is He Was My Son, S-O-N, slash, and then we have the word son, S-U-N. He Was My Son, slash, son. Everyone ready? Then away we go. my musical minions we have stepped off of the musical carousel the year is 1982 this is a nominee for the tony award for best musical it ran for exactly 1521 performances and that show is none other than dream girls boy will make you happy oh yes dream girls is going to be our next subject we got a big one that's a big one oh i'm so excited all right so go to patreon.com slash musical to find out how you can support the show financially, you can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you donate one dollar or more, you will get a verbal shout-out each and every week. Let's do that now. Thank you very much for donating Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You will also get, as a one dollar a month donor, bonus episodes covering the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the first trailer for Cats, and ABC's The Little Mermaid Live. If you donate three dollars a month, you will get everything I have already mentioned, plus a musical shout out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. Now available, Wildcats Everywhere, yes, for $3 and up donors, Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast. Now, if you donate $5 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus you get to stop the musical carousel one time only, one time only, and determine what show I shall discuss here on this very podcast. You also get the first season, 12 episodes, of All I Ask of You, the advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and you get access to our ongoing Broadway and Chicago Review Series. And finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus you get access to The Snub Club, a monthly series dedicated to musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical, coming this month, December 2019. Yes, yes, Aida, that's going to be dropping on Christmas Day. Christmas Day? Christmas Day. And past subjects include Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Flahooli, American Psycho, Be More Chill, Jekyll and Hyde, Allegiance, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, and The Bridges of Madison County. Yes! Your donations will go toward the purchase of rare cast recordings, movie rentals, and Podbean costs. If we ever get to the point where we're bringing in $100 or more in total donations, I will produce M3, The Movie Musical Man, a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. Thank you for listening to the show. If you are listening to the show through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to write a five-star review. Write out your thoughts on the show. Tell me all about it. We have 26 five-star reviews at this point, and when we get to the point where we have 30 written five-star reviews, I will post a special episode, record, and post to all, all of our listeners, all of our musical minions. That episode will be about Disney's Descendants trilogy. It's true. Stream the show at musicalmanpod.podbean.com and Stitcher, and follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod, and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com, and, 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 Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny in the booth, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. That's the doorbell. 
Oh, you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. to highlight race while refusing to talk about race, which is 